Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We had a, a spate of um, freezing deaths in the month of January 2000. Over the space of a couple of weeks, we would get these sort of sadly typical news releases from the city police that, that went along the lines of, uh, uh, you know, 28-year-old person uh, found frozen. Um, these were the general circumstances. We aren't naming them because it's not a, a violent death, uh, and that's just how they handled it. Dan Zakreski is a reporter for the CBC. In 2000, he worked for the Star Phoenix newspaper in Saskatoon, Canada. So that particular month, it was uh, uh, the post-Christmas newsroom doldrums. So I was uh, assigned to take a look at uh, one of these freezing deaths. There was a, a body found out by the city landfill, uh, which is in uh, sort of the southwest section of the city. It's uh, you know, relatively isolated for the city. And I was assigned to put together sort of a best practices story on, you know, don't get drunk and try to walk home. And develop a little bit of a feature on the individual who was frozen to try to put a human face on it. So I had begun to do my research. It, it started off by, uh, first of all, trying to find out the individual's name. Uh, and it turned out to be a fellow named Lawrence Wagner, who was a, a social work student here in town. And... Um, uh, was reaching out to his family and trying to find his background. Um, while I was in the process of researching that, my city editor had gotten, uh, at the time, what seemed like this uh, absolutely improbable tip that um, city police uh, had been dropping people off on the outside of town, First Nations people. Lawrence Wagner was a 30-year-old First Nations member. His body was found frozen to death on February 3rd, but as Dan Zakreski learned, he'd gone missing three days earlier. Dan wanted to know who had last seen Lawrence Wagner. He started knocking on doors. And one of the doors that I knocked upon was a woman named Eliza Whitecap. Uh, and I knocked on her doorway and I said, you know, had, had you heard anything about this? The woman said that she did know Lawrence Wagner. He was her nephew. And she goes, well, as a matter of fact, the night that he had gone missing, uh, that evening, that freezing cold evening, he had knocked on my doorway uh, and my daughter had answered it. Uh, and uh, he was clearly uh, under the influence of some sort of intoxicant. 
uh, because he was basically in his shirt sleeves and jeans and he was yelling, pizza, pizza. Uh, so I had called the police, I being Eliza, and when she called the police, uh, they said um, the 911 operator told her that uh, somebody else had already called about him and police had been dispatched. So that was really the sort of terrible aha moment because I had a, a clear connection uh, uh, involving the police and Mr. Wagner. He had come into contact with the police the night that he had died. Lawrence Wagner was found in a remote industrial area by a power plant, a place nobody walked, especially in the winter. And when Dan started looking into things, he noticed that another freezing death had been reported in the same area. A First Nations man named Rodney Nastus had been found there on January 29th. Two men's bodies, both frozen to death, found in the same place, in the same week. And then, on February 4th, a man came forward and said he'd been dropped off on the outskirts of town. But he had made it back alive. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. Daryl Knight was a First Nations man. He was 33 at the time. Dan Zakreski says the Saskatoon police knew Daryl well. He was getting picked up frequently by them, uh, intoxicated, uh, aggressive, abusive, would be put in a cruiser, uh, would be taken downtown, spend the night in the drunk tank, released the next day, uh, and then it was sort of shampoo, rinse, repeat. In the early hours of January 28th, Daryl Knight had been at his uncle's apartment. They'd fought, and around dawn, two police officers found Daryl Knight outside the apartment, intoxicated and yelling. Daryl Knight later said the officers handcuffed him and put him in the back seat. His account was he's put into the back of this cruiser and uh, he knows almost immediately that he's not being driven to the police station because it's the opposite direction. And and I recall speaking to him uh, and uh, he said the car got real quiet. Um, You know, he... He realized something was up. I think he was, you know, concerned that uh, was this going to lead to a beating? Uh, was he going to be shot? He didn't know what was going on. You know, you're in this cruiser and, and you think the cruiser should be going north and it's going south. And instead of heading towards the bright lights, uh, you're heading out into the darkness. Uh, and you've got these uh, uh, two police officers in the front seat who aren't talking to you and they're just driving you. Uh, It was a terrifying experience for him. Daryl Knight later said that the police drove him to a remote area and told him to get out of the car. He told the police he thought he would freeze to death. And according to Daryl Knight, one of the officers said, that's your problem, and the police car drove away. He later said, I thought I was dead. All those rumors I heard in the past, they were all coming true. When we first started reporting on this phenomena of what was happening, uh, I can remember a First Nations guy telling me, oh, it's just a starlight tour. And, and we'd heard, you know, versions of this in, in the past. You know, the idea being that uh, 
uh, police would pick a person up uh, who was intoxicated. Uh, they don't want to take him into the station because it involves a lot of paperwork. Uh, this fellow's thrown in jail. So they'll think, uh, oh, look, instead of um, uh, taking you into the police station and charging you, uh, we'll just uh, take you somewhere and you can walk it off. So it was kind of an open secret. Uh, what's problematic is if you're dealing with somebody who's really intoxicated and it's uh, 30 below and you take them somewhere, they might not make it back. So the scenario uh, that was presented to us, the tip, was that uh, uh, police had in fact done this, uh, taken a, a person to the edge of town in really cold weather uh, and dropped them off, uh, and they never made it back in. When we're talking really cold weather in Saskatoon in January, what, what temperature are we talking? It would be, uh, uh, I, I guess, you know, simply for comparison purposes, uh, 40 below, which is, uh, you know, 40 below Celsius and 40 below Fahrenheit are the same. So 40 below, freezing cold. You can die. Uh, you know, if it's windy out, uh, uh, you'll get frostbite on your face in a matter of minutes. So this is full-on parka, parka weather. Yeah, it's, it's the type of weather where if you're not careful, you can die whether you're intoxicated or not. So at this point, the police, was it the idea that the police, most of the police department was just finding out that, wait a second, there are some officers who have been doing this? Or was it, oh no, we've always known this and now everyone else knows it too? I think within the service... Uh, back in around 2000, it was, uh, I think I would characterize it as a mature police service, you know, in the sense that the, the average age of the officers and the years of experience was a little bit older. Uh, you know, they ran their, they, they did their business the way they did their business. They weren't uh, under a lot of scrutiny. So just within the police service, they were trying to figure out, well, who was working that night uh, who is in that particular sector of the city? Is it conceivable that they would have dropped them off? How widespread is this? On February 7th, two constables for the Saskatoon Police Force, Dan Hatchin and Ken Munson, admitted that they had picked up Daryl Knight, driven him to a remote area, and left him there. Three days later, they were suspended with pay. And then... The Saskatoon police chief announced he was ordering a homicide investigation into the deaths of Rodney Nastis and Lawrence Wegner, and another investigation into the claims made by Daryl Knight. The Saskatchewan Justice Department called in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to take over the investigations. Dan Zakreski remembers feeling like the whole thing was starting to explode. I can remember driving home in my car and seeing police cars and being nervous, thinking, are they following me because I'm doing this story? Have, have we uncovered this, uh, this horrible practice that's been going on? Uh, it was a, an, an awful experience. And, and trying to think, how far back did it go? I mean, even something as simple as, well, simple is maybe the wrong word, but when I was doing the, the research on um, Lawrence Wagner, you know, trying to do the death by misadventure uh, story, uh, going back in our files and finding out about Rodney Nastus, which had, had happened like right at the same time. And I had just never connected the dots because it just seemed like another freezing death. Uh, and then all of a sudden you have two First Nations guys found frozen right in the same area of town, right on the same weekend with Daryl Knight. It was terrifying. 
Like, it just seemed like we went from nothing to anything was possible. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Support for Criminal comes from Factor. After a long day at work, sometimes the most convenient dinner option is ordering takeout. But if you make a habit of it, it can get pricey. Factor offers restaurant-quality, ready-to-eat meals delivered right to your doorstep. Factor's meals are both nutritious and tasty, and you can choose from more than 35 different options weekly. They have a variety of meal types to fit your needs, too, like keto, calorie-smart, vegan and veggie, and more, with plenty of delicious add-ons also. I've tried Factor meals myself. Lately, I've enjoyed their shredded chicken taco bowl and Thai-roasted vegetable green curry. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. You can also pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Head to factormeals.com slash Phoebe50 and use code Phoebe50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code Phoebe50 at factormeals.com slash Phoebe50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Is there any thought about how many people were taken on these starlight tours? My gosh, once we broke the story, uh, the phone lines just lit up um, from people in the First Nations community calling, uh, and not just within Saskatoon, uh, from around the province, uh, saying, oh, yeah, this happens all the time. Uh, but nobody ever believed us when we told people. Um, you know, we're uh, socially and economically disadvantaged First Nations people um, being taken out by the state, by the representatives of the state. You know, who's going to believe us? White reporters aren't going to believe us. That was just sort of their world. Dan Zakreski remembers that one day his colleague, Les Perot, was going back through the newspaper's archives, looking for mentions of freezing deaths or First Nations men found in remote areas. I remember vividly sitting at my desk uh, in the Star Phoenix newsroom um, and uh, lo and behold, he got back to 1991. And I'm sitting there, and he, uh, he just sort of makes this uh, noise of great surprise. Uh, and I turn and look at him, and, and he goes, uh, meet Neil Stonechild. And he turns around and holds up our scrapbook, and there was the page one story on, uh, you know, family concerned with teens' suspicious death. And it was all there, all the elements of the concerned families, the disturbing set of facts, uh, were all there basically a decade earlier. While the Saskatoon Police Service was under scrutiny, there was one man inside the police service who was doing a sort of investigation of his own. And being a Northern Ontario kid, 
very respectful of the cold uh, and it, and its power. It's a very powerful um, thing. It, the, the, it just bugged me, like, how did this kid end up there? And I thought, well, when I get back to work, I'll find out what's going on. This is Ernie Lutet. At the time, he was a constable for the Saskatoon Police Service. When you started with the Saskatoon Police Force, how many First Nations officers were there? There was two ahead of me. I was the third one. So, and and uh, uh, what what percent would you say that was of the full force? One um, percent. <laughs> there was about uh, three hundred fifty officers, I think, when I started, and it, and it was the same pretty much across the boards. I think there was maybe ten or fifteen women at the time with the Saskatoon Police when I got hired. Uh, there was one uh, Asian Canadian. There was one African Canadian. Uh, and I, that was about it for us. <laughs> the rest of the guys were uh, white guys, lots of farmers, lots of farmers, kids, lots of hockey players. And uh, I, ch- I chose uh, to work in the places in Saskatoon where the First Nation population was really high. And... Uh, just became an identifiable person. You didn't have to like me, if you, you, but you knew who I was, and that made such a difference. So I, I ended up pretty much sticking in patrol for my entire career. Ernie Ludet was familiar with 17-year-old Neil Stonechild and his 14-year-old brother, Jake. They were both Sato First Nations members. The Stonechild brothers had had multiple run-ins with the police for petty theft, drinking, and breaking probation, both boys had spent time in youth detention centers. Ernie found it very odd that Neil Stonechild would be found by himself in such a remote area, wearing only one shoe, when the temperatures were so far below freezing. The local paper reported that his blood alcohol level was well above the legal limit, and his cause of death was listed as hypothermia. He was last seen five days before his body was found. Ernie wanted to see what was in the Saskatoon police file, which he wasn't supposed to be looking at because he wasn't a detective. He looked it up anyway. I went back to the police station and uh, found the file number on the computer and and, uh, against regulations had the girls pull the file because I had no no involvement in it. the, the girls from Central Records, the ladies from Central Records, and uh, they pulled it for me. And, and I, because it wasn't my file, they didn't want to be caught uh, reading a detective's file, especially on a sudden death, because uh, you know sudden deaths and homicides were uh, supposed to be really not not perused by patrolmen, because in case you learned something you didn't didn't weren't supposed to learn or whatever. Ernie made a photocopy of the file and took it home with him. And I read this report. It was about 26 or I can't remember how many pages, 27. It wasn't, wasn't very long. And most of it's uh, just your initial uh, responding officers and all that stuff like that. And I get to the investigation of it. And uh, it was concluded. It, it, the investigator concluded that uh, Neil Stonechild uh, had wandered... Uh, was going up to the adult correctional center to turn himself in on some outstanding warrants he had, and I knew right off the, the bat that I was that was ludicrous. It was uh, for one, he was a young offender in Canada. Young offenders at eighteen and under, and uh, they 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 don't get housed at adult institutions. So it basically said that he 
was walking to the wrong facility to turn himself in, and he froze to death. Basically, that was the conclusion. Ernie went to see Neil's mother, Stella Bignall. The last time Stella had seen Neil was the night of November 24th. Five days later, the police showed up at her door and told her his body had been found. She told Ernie that she couldn't get any updates from the police and that she couldn't get anyone to give her back her son's belongings. She felt like no one was listening to her. Ernie says he made up his mind that he was going to try to help. First, he went to his staff sergeant. He says that didn't go well. He was told to speak with Sergeant Keith Jarvis. Sergeant Jarvis had been with the Saskatoon Police Service for 24 years, and he had been in charge of the investigation into Neil Stonechild's death. He'd closed the file. And I went into Sergeant Jarvis's office, and it went bad from the minute I walked through the door. You could tell uh, I, was, I was the last person he wanted to see. What did you say when you walked in? I said, I have information about the uh, death of Neil Stonechild. And he was instantly angry. Um, he, you know, he says, what are you doing meddling this kind of thing? And I uh, went on for 45 minutes and basically told me I didn't know what I was talking about, that I shouldn't be meddling in things I don't know anything about. Nothing I can remember about that meeting was even remotely good. Uh, there is no, thanks for bringing this information in, you know, we'll look into it, blah, blah, blah. Nothing, just... Uh, 45 minutes later, he knew what my concerns were. He pretty much told me that that uh, keep my nose out of it, that I, uh, that things could happen to me. And and that's such an open statement, right, that things can happen to you. And and, and when you're a cop, it could, it could be a lot of things. Right? It could be uh, you could be sidelined into a front desk position. You could be, uh, you know, who knows, right? Uh, anyway, it was so I left there and I was I was incredibly frustrated. I thought, well, you know, at, there's no way they cannot do something now. Uh, I'd given them all the information I had, uh, you know, whether it was hearsay or not, it was still worthy of of ha- them having a look at it. And there's, I thought they've got it. You know, they're going to contact Stella. Or, and at least reopen us or take a second harder look at it, or at least a supervisor would. But uh, I went back and seen Stella uh, my next shift, and uh, she said no one had been to see her at all and that nothing had changed. And I, and I said to her, I said, I said, if that was a white kid, I said, or the son of the mayor, I said, I'm, I'm sure this wouldn't be closed and, you know, that you'd be treated better. And I was, uh, it was just, it was such, to me, it was such... Poor, poor policing. A few months after Neil Stonechild's body was found, the star Phoenix ran a story with the headline, Family Suspects Foul Play. Police Say Every Avenue Investigated. That was the article that Dan and his colleague Les Perot found a decade later when they were digging through the paper's archives. They decided to put Neil Stonechild back in the newspaper on the front page nearly 10 years after his death. They put his picture and his story just above a story about the suspected role of Saskatoon police officers in the deaths of Rodney Nastis and Lawrence Wegner. Inquests were just getting underway into those cases, and juries would end up concluding that the men died of hypothermia, but failed 
quote, to determine the circumstances leading to the deaths. In the case of Daryl Knight, the man who had survived being dropped off by police, an all-white jury, seven men and five women, found constables Dan Hatchen and Ken Munson guilty of unlawful confinement. They were sentenced to eight months in a low-security correctional facility. With all this going on, there was a lot of renewed interest in the circumstances surrounding Neil Stonechild's death. Federal police started looking into it. But there was a problem. No one could find the police report from the initial investigation in 1990. The file had been purged. That was, uh, it was a rumor at first, and I didn't pay attention to it because we were just, there were so many rumors going around at the time. Uh, so I'd heard that the file had been purged in a routine purge of files uh, 10 years or older in the Saskatoon Police Service when they were trying to free up space in our old police station. So I got interviewed a, a whole bunch of times because uh, by then they'd learned that I'd had information about it. So I had my notes, all the notes I had, and I showed it to them. Showed them to them and got interviewed by the RCMP several times. And all during this, while this was going on, of course, Saskatoon police became the kind of focus of the national attention in Canada. And, and of course, there was accusations of racism, murder, and all these things. The RCMP is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, Canada's federal law enforcement. Ernie says he was willing to talk to them. The case had been bothering him for years. He remembered his conversations with Neil Stonechild's mother and brother, and remembered thinking that something didn't seem right. And then, one day in 2001, Ernie was looking for something in his basement, going through old boxes, when he opened a box that he hadn't opened in 10 years. And then what's sitting there but uh, a copy of the Neil Stonechild report. You had forgotten that you saved it? Yeah, I, I had it in my posse box. I was used to call our ticket box for so long, and I took it out, and I just brought it home, and I put it in my barrack box, and it was the only report in existence. And uh, I called the RCMP guy right away, and I called our, our deputy chief in the Saskatoon Police Service, and uh, got, got in my truck, drove downtown, gave it to them, and they photocopied it. And what were you thinking? Were you thinking, you know, thank God I saved this, or were you thinking I'm going to get in even more trouble now, or...? Yeah, I thought I thought I was going to be in trouble actually because I, uh, you know, we weren't supposed to take reports. But this one always bugged me, so I always kept it. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I kind of felt in jeopardy. I, there was a few times through this whole course of all this, I felt in jeopardy just for breaking the rules or whatever the case was. But uh, this one here, I knew when I found the report that that. Uh, it was going to change things for, for me. It was going to change things for a lot of people. But I was happy in one respect that I was trying to articulate what my concerns were to the RCMP and stuff like that. And there it was in black and white. Reporter Dan Zakreski. Ernie was able to produce uh, original documentary evidence uh, that just showed how badly the police service had, had screwed up that investigation. He played an incredible part, and he had an insight into how it wasn't handled. In February 2003, Saskatchewan's justice minister announced there would be an official inquiry into the death of Neil Stonechild. The inquiry started in September. There would be 43 days of testimony, 
and 63 people would testify. So a lot of work uh, in the inquiry went into trying to establish uh, or come up with a, a set of facts on what happened the evening that Neil Stonechild went missing. Uh, and again, this was, you know, happening at a time in the police service when, um, you know, we didn't have in-car cameras, uh, we didn't have uh, GPS units in the cars, so it was difficult to have kind of an objective standard of, uh, you know, who was where and when. According to the original investigative report, the one that Ernie had photocopied and had been filed by Sergeant Jarvis back in 1990, no member of the police force had any contact with Neil Stonechild on the night of his death. But during the inquiry, Neil's friend, Jason Roy, testified that he'd seen Neil in a police car that night. Jason said Neil had been yelling, help me, these guys are going to kill me. Jason Roy testified he'd told Sergeant Jarvis about seeing Neil in a police car. But none of this made it into the report. Several of Neil's family members testified that they'd seen gashes and bruises on Neil's face at the funeral and marks on his wrists. Ernie Ludet testified for two days. What did you say when you testified? I was so... I, I'm not going sugarcoated. I was I soundly criticized the Saskatoon police and their investigative procedures and, and uh, how you know how Neil Stonechild's death in particular uh, was investigated. Uh, I talked about the, the environment back then and and uh, the way his death was investigated was was awful. And the way his family was treated was awful. Did anyone say, you know, you're a turncoat or you don't do that to I'd say most everybody that I worked with, like my generation of officers, were supportive, all right? Uh, some of the older cops were not. Uh, but th- I don't want to paint all those guys with the, uh, the same brush. There was a lot of good police officers back then. It's just I hardly, I, I, I suppose because where I was working, I, I dealt with more of the the ones that weren't. Um, but yeah, lost lost friends, made friends. Uh, uh, even, you know, I think every, that self-preservation thing kicked in. A lot of police just didn't want to talk about it, right? And, and even years later, like for me now, uh, there's still police officers retired that say uh, he should quit talking about this Neil Stonechild thing, right? And, and for a while... You know, I'd think, well, are they right? Should I stop talking about it? And then I thought about it. No, it was an important story. And and, uh, at the end of the inquiry, and kind of skipping two ahead here, uh, but uh, at the end of the inquiry, the Justice Wright, who had overseen the inquiry, released his report. It was five months after the inquiry ended. And my wife and I were sitting at home, and... uh, the provincial minister was releasing it, and and uh, Justice Wright stated that uh, he believed that two Saskatoon police constables had Neil Stonechild in their custody on the night that he died. And it, it was shocking. Here's Dan Zakreski. Uh They lost their jobs. Uh, there was never uh, enough evidence to lead to criminal charges. 
but uh, they were um, tagged as the guys who had, uh, for lack of a better expression, killed Neil Stonechild. Uh, and not everybody believed it. You know, the, the police association, the, the chronology that was put together, it was a, a tough set of facts all around. Uh, but these fellows, uh, you know, we look back on it, they paid for the sins of the Saskatoon Police Service in Neil Stonechild's death. I think the, the really damning part of the Stonechild inquiry, though, was when the family came forward, uh, how the investigation was just blown off. There was no investigation. Uh, and that became a, a real systemic issue. Justice Wright called Sergeant Jarvis's investigation superficial and totally inadequate. He made a series of recommendations to the Saskatoon Police Service. They included in-depth training about race and that the province, quote, establish an introductory program for Aboriginal candidates and candidates from minority communities for police services. Do you think that the deaths would have been investigated earlier if it hadn't been First Nations people? I don't know. It's... It doesn't... You know, probably, yeah. I'm hesitating because it doesn't speak well for media as well. Certainly within the First Nations community, there was a sense that, oh, you're just waking up to this now? It was an eye-opener for a lot of people, myself included. I think this will be the first time that most uh, uh, people in the United States will have heard about this. In June of 2003... Then-Police Chief Russell Sabo apologized on behalf of the Saskatoon Police Force. He also said, quote, It's quite conceivable there were other times. He said that in 1976, an officer was disciplined for driving a Native woman to the outskirts of town and abandoning her there. In 2016, Dan Zakreski was contacted by a college student trying to write a paper on the Saskatoon Police Service. The student told Dan he couldn't find anything about the Starlight Tours on the Saskatoon Police Service's Wikipedia page. And when he checked back, he found out that it had actually been edited out. Uh, apparently that's one of the features of Wikipedia, as you can see the edits. Uh, and, and he did some digging, and we verified this, that the Starlight Tours section had been edited out by somebody at the police station. Now, what we were able to determine was that the police uh, were sort of caught dead to rights. You know, they acknowledged that, yes, the IP addresses as to where these edits were done trace us back to the station, but they were never able to determine who or where in the station happened. Uh, their internet logs were uh, wiped every 30 days just because of the amount of traffic. So they uh, admitted that somebody in the station, uh, for whatever reason, uh, had decided to take that particular part of their history out. And um, it was very embarrassing for them because, you know, you're 16 years past uh, the, the inquiry and all of that stuff, and yet there was clearly still people within the station who just didn't want that to be known. We contacted the Saskatoon Police Service for this story and received the following statement from the current police chief, Troy Cooper. All recommendations made as part of the inquiry into Neil Stonechild's death were implemented by the Saskatoon Police Service. 
There's been a great deal of change within the service over the last 16 years, including training, recruiting, and relationship building with members of the indigenous community. We continue to look for ways to strengthen those relationships. The majority of our officers currently serving were hired after the 2004 inquiry and after the changes were implemented. Our service supports calls for an independent oversight body. Criminal is created by Lauren Spohr and me. Nadia Wilson is our senior producer. Susanna Robertson is our assistant producer. Audio mix by Rob Byers. Special thanks to Michelle Harris. Julian Alexander makes original illustrations for each episode of Criminal. You can see them at thisiscriminal.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Criminal Show. Criminal is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collection of the best shows around, including brand new shows, like This Day in Esoteric Political History. Each episode takes one moment that happened that day in our political history, some well-known, some more obscure, and discusses what lessons it has for this moment. It's a show that tries to give a little historical perspective to these very odd times. And each episode is 10 minutes long. It's hosted by Jody Avergan, formerly of 538, and historian Nicole Hemmer of Columbia. New episodes arrive every Tuesday and Thursday. Go listen. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. Radio Tokyo.